You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Schumann Distinguished Scholar at Middlebury College and leader of the climate campaign group 350.org. His 1989 book, The End of Nature, is regarded as the first book for a general audience about climate change and has appeared in 24 languages. He has won the Gandhi Peace Prize, the Right Livelihood Award, and honorary degrees from 20 colleges and universities. Foreign Policy named him to its list of the world's 100 most important global thinkers. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Bill McKibben. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Well, what a pleasure to be with you today. As always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about how you got into environmentalism and founding 350.org. Well, I was began my life as a writer. And in 1989, when I was 27 or 28, I published a, a book called The End of Nature, which, as you say, was the first book about climate change. And so uh, it at first was a kind of journalistic project. I thought it was the biggest story in the world and that no one was covering it. Um, and in the course of that, I became more and more convinced that I did not want the world to overheat and and be wrecked. So since then, I've spent much of my time um, as a kind of volunteer organizer and activist. You know, there's a way to stay ahead of global developments like today's, no matter where they happen. RAIN podcasts focus on the future effects of current events, offering a perspective you and your business can put to work right away. More than 400 leading corporations, government agencies, and academic institutions trust RAIN to help them address a range of enterprise risks. Our podcasts bring that content directly to you. Understand the why behind what's happening now so you can prepare for what happens next. Subscribe to Rain's podcasts wherever you listen or visit rainworldview.com. Okay, cool. So I wanted to start off today by talking to you about some environmental policy issues and then finish off talking about your latest book. So there are a few common arguments that we hear from the so-called right-wing media um, in response to the Bernie Sanders slash Green New Deal proposals that I wanted to get your response to. Now, the reason I want to do this is because there are obviously people who completely agree with the latter on most issues. And so the people that are most likely to get something out of this talk are those that fall somewhere in between on the spectrum and have doubts or concerns that they don't really hear effective engagement on. Um, so the first thing um, that, that we um, hear a lot from this type of media is um, talking about the history of doomsday predictions. So, for example, in 1989, a senior UN environmental officer warned that entire nations would be wiped off the face of the earth by rising sea levels by the year 2000, and that we had 10 years before um, climate change goes out of human control. In 2004, the Pentagon told President George W. Bush um, that Britain would be plunged into a Siberian climate by 2020, and that nuclear conflict, mega drought, famine, widespread rioting would erupt across the world. Um, Noel Brown, the then director of the UNEP, predicted that temperature would rise by up to seven degrees between 1989 and 2019. Um, so for so many people who have heard these sorts of um, false doomsday claims, um, you know, be they real or not, they've heard them over and over again um, for decades. Um, more of the same kind of rhetoric can become very 
very difficult to take seriously. So how would you respond to people, many of whom might actually take climate change as an issue seriously um, with regards to no longer being able to find themselves believing current estimates and predictions given the contentious history? Well, first of all, I don't. I think most of the things that you cite are nonsense. I don't think the Pentagon ever did say that Britain would be plunged into a freezing cold by 2020. I would be highly surprised to uh, see that as a real prediction from anywhere in the Pentagon. I've never seen it. But more to the point, at this point, we don't need people worrying about predictions and estimates. All you have to do is open your eyes and look around you. We've already lost half the sea ice in the summer Arctic. Uh, the planet is already a degree Celsius, that's basically two degrees Fahrenheit, uh, warmer because of the carbon that we've put into the atmosphere. Uh, that doesn't sound like a huge number, so think of it in other units. It's the heat equivalent every day of about 400,000 Hiroshima-sized explosions. Now, that's been enough to fundamentally rewrite the hydrology of the planet, the way that water moves around the Earth. Warm air holds more water vapor than cold, which is simple physics. That's why we see big increases in evaporation and hence drought in arid areas. And as a result, we have forest fire seasons that last twice as long as they used to and fires that are uh, far, far more intense than anything we've ever measured. On the other hand, uh, once that water vapor is evaporated up into the atmosphere, it's going to come down and increasingly it comes down in large torrents. Uh, that's why we've seen by far the biggest rainstorms in American history in the last few years. Uh, place things like Hurricane Harvey that managed to drop five feet of rain from an overheated Gulf of Mexico uh, onto the Houston area. Um, the U.S., of course, is not the place that's being hit hardest. That would probably be Africa, which is a reminder of just how brutal climate change is uh, and, and that the iron law of climate change is the less you did to cause it, the sooner and the harder you get hit. Uh, uh, Africa's contributed about 2% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere, the entire continent. The 4% of us who live in the U.S. have put about a quarter of all the greenhouse gases up there. So this is really, um, this is really our doing in lots of ways. Okay. Um, yeah. So just one thing. Um, the, the Pentagon uh, report that I mentioned um, was reported by The Guardian on the 22nd of Feb. Um, 2004, um, you know, was a 2004 report commissioned by Pentagon Defense Advisor Andrew Marshall um, and found that between 2010 and 2020, um, Europe is hardest hit by climate change with an average uh, annual temperature drop of six degrees. Climate in Britain becomes colder and drier as weather patterns begin to resemble Siberia. So um, as, as far as sourcing goes, I think that one's that one's not um, entirely false. Um, um, but yeah, so for, for so much of our audience, I mean, they've heard um, a lot of these stories, a lot of these predictions for the last 20, 30 years. Is there something different now? Is the data that we have now, um, you know, measurably more accurate than what we had, um, you know, in the 80s and 90s and, and so on? Uh, yeah, because it's all, I mean, I, I didn't give you any predictions there at all. I just told you what's actually going on. Uh, and and there are remarkable changes, the likes of which we've never seen any place in the entire planet. Okay, yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, if we 
rather rather than um, the predictions, then just looking around us and, and like you point out, uh, some changes we might be able to see um, just just around us. Um, I, I think that's that's quite convincing. Um, so the next argument that is extremely common from the conservative media space um, is in the foreign policy sphere. So even if we fully accept all the IPCC estimates and the severity of the issues, um, pouring more money into green energy and so on and a Green New Deal style isn't going to be effective because it's going to be almost impossible to do on a global level, or so goes the argument. Um, on an absolute basis, China and India are the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases, and especially China would almost certainly take advantage of our sacrifice on the economic front to gain more power. Um, places like Germany that moved in the green energy direction became extremely dependent on Russia for natural gas, um, which, is, as we've all seen, has contributed financially to fueling a mur murderous regime. Um, so the argument goes that even if we in the United States decimate our economy trying to fight this crisis, the real big polluters like China are not only going to follow, but rather exploit the situation to gain a leg up, and we won't really change anything. So how would you respond? Well, first of all, the idea that we would decimate our economy uh, seems wrong. Uh, in fact, any economy. Uh, the, the biggest study of all of this came out last year from Oxford, kind of mega study looking at learning curves, and it predicted that because the price of renewable energy has dropped so sharply in the last decade and is now the cheapest way to generate power across most of the planet. The Earth as a whole would save tens of trillions of dollars from a rapid conversion off fossil fuel into renewable energy. And if you think about it for a little while, the reasons become clear. Yes, it costs some money to put up a solar panel. I'm looking at one in my backyard right now, and it did cost some money to put it up. But once it's up, it the energy for our house is delivered every morning when the sun rises above the horizon. We don't need to go out and uh, and burn coal or gas or oil and then go mine some more and buy it again tomorrow. Uh, uh, that's the beautiful economics of renewable energy. And it's precisely the reason the fossil fuel industry fights so hard to prevent it. And the idea that uh, that no one else has figured this out is incorrect. The Chinese are installing renewable energy at a pace faster than any place else in the world. Uh, India does not produce more greenhouse gas emissions than the U.S. Uh, uh, India could be one of the first places in the world because of this changing economics to be able to bypass uh, much of the um, fossil fuel era and go straight to a heavy dose of renewables because at the moment, uh, it's cheaper to actually build a new solar plant in India than it is merely to operate an existing, already built coal-fired power plant because you have to keep buying new coal every day, but there the sun is every single morning. Um, okay, so what about, um, you know, sort of the other um, proposals outside of just, um, you know, switching to renewable energy, um, things like uh, carbon taxes and, and that sort of thing that China probably isn't likely to imitate. Um, does that really matter or is the, the, the big fight all about um, renewable energy? Well, the, all things like carbon prices are efforts to get uh, uh, renewable energy deployed faster. Um, um, and so I think that the, the problem is not getting China to put a price on carbon. They've actually put a price on carbon. They have a national emissions trading scheme, uh, and it's continuing to expand. It's the U.S. that's never put a price on carbon. Uh, and 
and that's the reason that in per capita terms, we're by far the biggest uh, uh, major emitter. And in historical terms, the Chinese will never come close to Uh, I'm I'm sorry, you you sort of cut out there at the end. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can still hear you. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah. So um, a, another thing, sort of similar to that point, then is sort of the the Maslow's hierarchy argument um, that for the billions of people living in countries where immediate issues like clean water, adequate food and shelter, um, and, and basic medical care are precarious, climate change is far from their list of priorities. So. For this large portion of the world that is financially insecure or living in places um, where they're just beginning to enjoy um, the basic amenities um, that we've had here for generations like AC and automobiles, um, it's not really possible to get them to look 50 or 100 years in the future. Um, So then what do you reckon we do about this huge part of the world population that just isn't going to care? Well, uh, the idea that they're not going to care is simply wrong. Uh, All the polling data shows, in fact, that there's a far higher level of concern about climate change among people in the developing world than there is in the U.S. And within the U.S., it's African-American and Latino communities that are the most concerned about climate change and most eager to take action. And all of that, of course, would make sense because these are the people pinched first and hardest by the rise in temperature. So it shouldn't come as a surprise. The high level of concern in places like Africa or South America or Asia about climate change, you can see it in the public polling data. You can see it in the work of their leaders in international forums. You can see it in the extremely great organizing that goes on all over the world. Uh, uh, You know, uh, 350.org, which I've uh, helped found, has organized 20,000 demonstrations in every country in the world except North Korea. And I will tell you that the single best organizers in the whole world uh, are in Africa and in the low-lying nations of the Pacific. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, I mean, even even if we can make the argument that you know these people are concerned and that they are going to show up for demonstrations, um, their their countries or you know the places that they live, their communities probably you know don't have the the sort of resources to start switching to renewable energy or uh, again, make any of those I, I, investments. Again, I think that your fact base is wrong here. Uh, I wrote a long piece a couple of years ago for the New Yorker about uh, I spent a lot of time in the most remote parts of Africa where people have never been able to access power because of the high price of building out the grid. I mean, it's effectively never going to come there for the 800 million people or so who lack access to electricity. But all of a sudden, the cheap price of solar power is allowing people to gain access to uh, those resources very, very quickly. The UN estimates that 90% of the new hookups for electricity over the next 40 years are going to come from renewable energy, not fossil energy. So this is the cheap stuff uh, and the way to provide uh, uh, inexpensive power to people in remote places. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's that's really interesting. The idea that um, these people could sort of bypass um, the the route that you know we in the West have largely taken and go straight from um, where they are now to sort of um, renewable energy and not have to um, first go through you know becoming dependent on fossil fuels and then making that eventual transition at all. Yes, that's correct. In much the same way that people didn't build telephone poles, they went straight to cell phones in much of the world. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, one more thing. Um, I think the final thing I wanted to address that we we often hear um, from the right leaning media space um, is the elevation of 
the free market invasion um, over government intervention. Um, so the argument essentially goes that we as humans are great at adapting and innovating, um, but terrible at preventing. So rather than have the government do things like taxes, carbon taxes, um, uh, we should ha- rather have a market um, free enough from intervention and red tape where the next generation of Elon Musk's can experiment with geoengineering, seawalls, et cetera, et cetera, and an attempt to effectively adapt as a species and overcome the impacts of climate change, which we might accept at rather than trying to prevent it, which is something we're less adept at and likely to get right. So how would you respond to that line of reasoning? Well, I think that the um, scientists and engineers have already done the job and provided us the the miracle we need to work with. And that's that 90% decrease in the price of renewable energy. Uh, Power from the sun and wind and batteries to store it are now, as I've said, the cheapest energy on earth. And uh, People like Mark Jacobson at Stanford have uh, pointed out uh, or their labs have developed comprehensive plans for every state in the union and every country on earth to adapt them at reasonable prices uh, at rapid order in order to head off climate change. So why would you want to um, go break the climate and then hope that Elon Musk comes up with something to rescue it someday uh, instead of just doing the straightforward work that, as I've said, saves tens of trillions of dollars uh, to get us where we need to go. Um, okay, so can you can you tell us a bit more about what that would look like? So, for example, um, if the United States um, you know, was able to overcome all the political tension, put all that aside and make the switch to renewable energy. Um, and we were able to see um, that all, uh, in a large part of the world, um, what does sort of the, the the trajectory look like for us um, as opposed to, you know, if we don't, if we don't do anything, as opposed to if we do make, make that switch, um, is, is it something that will will push back an, an inevitable outcome further or um, something we might be able to avert some sort of crisis altogether? A sort of neither one in between. Um, it's too late to stop global warming. We've already raised the temperature, as I say, about a degree Celsius. Um, and that's causing huge problems, which we can't reverse. At the moment, however, we're on a trajectory to raise the temperature three degrees Celsius. If we allow that to happen, then we probably won't have civilizations like the ones we're used to. So all the fight at the moment is an effort to hold that temperature increase to two degrees or below, maybe a degree and a half. That would take extraordinary effort. We'd have to cut emissions in half in the course of this decade. It's within the realm of the technically possible uh, because we have all that available renewable energy. But it would take focus of the kind that we applied, say, to building uh, the arsenal of democracy uh, the last time that fascism threatened Europe in the middle of the 20th century. So it, we have our work cut out for us, and there's no sign that we're doing it at the pace we need to at the moment. Uh, but it's by no means technologically impossible, nor financially ruinous. Okay. Um, and yeah, I just once again want to make clear that um, these are not sort of my arguments, these are things, you know, I've taken directly from um, a lot of what, um, you know, is frequently discussed on, you know, right-wing radio shows and, and conservative yeah, media go. and that sort of thing. Um, and so I, I just wanted to sort of provide a forum because for for people who are, who do listen um, to primarily that sort of media, they'll they'll be hearing a lot of these sorts of points um, day in, day out um, without necessarily getting a, a lot of um, pushback on these. And so I, I wanted to raise them with someone like you um, and, and, and to dispel some of those. Sounds good. 
Okay. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think you did uh, an excellent job responding to so many of those things that I'm, you know, incredibly well convinced myself after, after listening to your, your conviction on that. Um, so, so finally, I wanted to um, talk about your latest book titled The Flag, The Cross, and The Station Wagon. A uh, graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. Um, as I understand it, it's a memoir looking back at how America has changed since your suburban, uh, suburban upbringing um, about half a century ago. So tell us a, a bit about what drove you to embark on writing this book and give us an overview of what it's about. Well, I think we're in a difficult place right now in this country, and I wanted to figure out why, because when I was young, it had not seemed that we were going to end up in a world that in a country that wasn't taking environmental damage seriously, that was suppressing votes instead of extending the franchise, that was rolling back the rights of women, on and on and on. Um, and I, I think the point of the book is that the crucial decade turns out to be the 1970s, uh, where... We enter it still with the momentum of the Depression, the Second World War, and the immediate post-war years, uh, working uh, uh, to make a country uh, a, a better place, working collectively with a national goal in mind. And by the end of that decade, we'd elected Ronald Reagan, who set us on a very different path. Uh, told us that the only thing that mattered was individuals, uh, that government, just another name for all of us working together, was the problem, not the solution. And I think that hyper-privatized, hyper-individualized world that Reagan ushered in has dominated our political life for the last four decades and explains a great deal of the trauma that we find ourselves undergoing at the moment. So that's really the point of the book. Hey, and, and tell us a bit more about this title, the, the flag, the cross, and the station wagon. What does that mean? Well, the flag refers to American history, and I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, so I had a front row seat to a lot of American history being the site of the first battle. The cross is about what's happened to religiosity in America, the transition from a uh, mainline Protestant-dominated America to an evangelical-dominated uh, America, again, with a very privatized and individualized focus on a one-on-one relationship with God instead of the building of a community. And the station wagon is the reference to uh, the totem of suburban prosperity in my youth. And uh, that section of the book wonders about whether or not that prosperity turned out to be what we thought it would be uh, and, and argues that in many ways it's been ruinous, not least for the big puff of CO2 that it poured into the atmosphere. Okay. Um, and so I think looking back, um, t- tell us a bit more about um, sort of your, your upbringing um, in, in Lexington and, and what that, you know, what that sort of um, upbringing would look like today and those discrepancies. Uh, my parents bought a house in 1970 for $30,000, $200,000 in today's money. That house sold last year for a million dollars. So that $800,000 increment uh, is just the escalator that people managed to get on if they were in the right place at the right time. And of course, in 1970, there were lots of people who couldn't get on that escalator for very obvious reasons and were left ever further behind. Uh, So that wealth gap between the hyper-privileged and the rest uh, is in many ways a function of what happened in suburban America um, and and one of the things that afflicts us to this day. 
And why does that matter? Like what what are the sort of manifestations we see of that in, in America today? Well, I think that an unequal a society as unequal as ours is a breeding ground for just the kind of um, just the kind of deformities we see at the moment. Uh, a very low levels of social trust, uh, a, a, a aggressive and angry um, um, undermining of uh, this uh, of our political order. Um, as exemplified by people invading the capital of the U.S., killing police officers to try to stop the counting of votes. That was not something people would have imagined in my youth. Um, okay, so I've spent quite a lot of time discussing this um, inequality issue. And one thing that comes up um, quite frequently is um, if if we can make um, – you know, make sure that people have uh, can avoid poverty. They have um, enough to feed their kids and, and give them an education and, and put a roof over their heads and dinner on the table. For example, um, you know, if no one is is struggling to meet basic needs, um, then why does it matter that um, you know your neighbor has has more than you? Um, you know, you're you're both well off, and and isn't that what should matter? Well, lots of people are struggling to meet their basic needs. Um, lots of people don't have food on the table. American life expectancy has been dropping over the last four or five years for the first time in American history. Uh, there are millions and millions of people without access to medical care. Uh, education has become prohibitively expensive for many, many people. So I, I just don't think your picture of the world uh, comports with uh, the reality around. No, um, I, I wasn't saying that that's how it is now. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm merely saying that well, if I mean, we can I, I, yes, aspire if everybody, to that. If everybody in the world had everything they needed, then I don't think anyone would much mind if a few people had more. But that's that was the world that we imagined was coming back when I was growing up. And it's not the world that we got. Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Good um, questions. Very good questions and a real pleasure to get to talk with you. I'm glad. Um, thank you for joining us on the show. I'm, I'm sure right. our audience will really enjoy listening to this discussion. And I and I hope it challenges some of the things um, they've heard or believed about the climate. Um, there you go. That's important work. Thank you very much. Thank you. So thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.